For first-time horse owners and new riders, finding the information and support you need can be challenging. Luckily, Equine Network has partnered with Sentinel and Absorbine to bring you MyNewHorse.com as your one-stop shop for easy-to-understand horse care information and guidance. Visit MyNewHorse.com. You're listening to Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. (laughs) Welcome to Sleep Stories for Equestrians. I'm your host, Ashley Winch. We're so happy you're here to relax and unwind. If you fall asleep and miss the story, we will recap it at the beginning of the next episode. We've also selected and edited these stories for ultimate relaxation, removing any stressful bits without affecting the story's integrity, so you can focus on drifting off to sleep. With that, let's settle down and prepare for our story. The gates are closed, the horses sleep, the day's work done, the chores complete. Now let us rest, our bodies and minds, drift off to sleep, and close your eyes. It's time for us to turn down for the night. Now let's breathe in, breathe out, and turn off the light. One more time, breathe out, breathe in. Now let us begin. Last week, we left the BB family as they were narrowly escaping the storm and all of the damage on Chincoteague Island. Let's see what happens next and if we're going to finally meet Misty's foal, Stormy. Chapter 11 Refugees Wallop Station is on the mainland of Virginia just across the bay from Chincoteague Island. Once, it had been a naval air station, teeming with activity. Planes roaring off and gliding in, signal crews waving orders, officers and men, pilots and engineers, radio technicians and clerks all crisscrossing from building to building. Then, the government closed the base and for three years the building stood empty, like a forest of dead trees. But when the helicopter landed that stormy March evening, lights were blazing in every window. The whole place had come to life. Fire trucks were racing to meet helicopters, rushing the refugees to the hospital, and others to the barracks, and even the administration building. The storm was now 24 hours old, wind still blowing strong, rain gusty, clouds low, no moon, no stars. At the edge of the landing strip, the little clump of passengers stood huddled, clutching their blankets, staring at the yellow headlights coming towards them. Which building? A fireman called out as he drove the truck with an earshot. Grandpa Beebe shouted back, Don't know. Be there a fire? 
The driver replied with a boom of laughter. There's no fire, old timer. I simply got to ask each family if they want to go where your friends are. Climb on in, folks. Hey, chief, Grandpa addressed the driver. We don't any of us know one building from the other, but if it's all the same to you, we'd be best to see little Miss Wilton first. In that shawl, she's got the teensiest baby you ever did see. The driver nodded. Good idea, he said, backing and turning and roaring away. He dropped Mrs. Wilton and her baby at the hospital, left the Hoopers and the Twileys at one of the barracks, and took the Beebe family to the mess hall. There's more children here, he explained. Wet and weary, Grandpa and Grandma, Paul and Maureen, climbed the flight of stairs to the second floor, clutching their blankets. Paul still had the ham, now slung over his shoulder. An arrow on the wall pointed to an open door down the hall. Light streamed in, and voices buzzed. The room, half filled with refugees, was large and bright, and it smelled of wet wool and rubber boots and fear and despair. Make yourself to home, an earlier arrival greeted them. Just find a little spot to call your own. Lucky thing you have blankets. These floors are mighty hard for sleeping. For a moment, the BBs stood looking around trying to accustom their eyes to the light. Benches were lined up against the walls and scattered throughout the room. Most of the people were strangers to them, refugees from Nag's Head probably, or other islands nearby. They sat paralyzed, like animals caught in a trap, not struggling anymore, just numbed. Only their eyes moved towards the entrance as each new family trudged in. They all look so sad and full of aches, Grandma said, searching for a place to sit down. I see an emptied bench, Maureen called, and led the way in, out and among suitcases and camp chairs and children. An old grizzled seaman in a ragged jacket came over and confronted Grandpa. He swore loud oaths to the sea and the sky. Can't believe it could happen here, he said, pounding his fist on his hand. Why, you read about it elsewhere. Yep, tidal waves slam up in faraway places, but you never dream about it happening here. At the far end of the room, women from the ladies' aid were bringing in platters of sandwiches and a huge coffee pot. Take our ham over to them, Paul, Grandma said. Maybe they'd like to cut it in chunks and bake it with potatoes for tomorrow. I'd feel a heap happier if I could help, she confided to Maureen. When the table was readied, people began forming in line, and all at once, there were no longer trapped animals. They were human beings again, smiling at one another, sharing stories of rescue. Drawn by the smell of food, a long-eared pup shot out of a blanket and ran towards the table, his mistress after him. Paul and Maureen joined the chase. How did you do it? 
How could you bring your dog? Paul asked. Why, he's all the family I got, and I just rolled him up in his blanket. This afghan is really his, the woman explained, and he burrowed up into it tight like a turtle in his shell. The pilot didn't even see him. Tonight, she added with a smile, he's got to share his blanket with me for a change. Maureen admired the dog, thinking of Skipper. We couldn't find our Skipper, she said, as she stroked and petted the little pup. The lady was all sympathy. Tell me about your dog. We had a big collie right up until time to leave, Paul answered. And we got a pony in our kitchen back in Chincoteague, Maureen spoke up. The woman suddenly seemed to recognize Paul. Why, you're the boy who caught a wild mare over to Assateague and set her free again. The children nodded. And the pony, in your kitchen, is it Misty? Yes, ma'am, it's Misty, all right. The woman was excited. Why, they've been talking about her on the radio. Children who saw her movie are swamping the stations with calls, wanting to know if she is safe. She's safe, Paul said. That is, she... He stopped. He could feel his heart throbbing in his ears. In a split-second dream, he was back on Chincoteague, with the ocean rolling and pounding in under the house, and with a horrible hissing sound it was breaking the house apart, and in the same instant, Misty was out swimming until her mane became one with the spume. Paul shook off the dream as the woman called three young children to her. You youngsters, she said, will be glad to know that Misty's safe in the Beebe's kitchen. And this is Paul and Maureen Beebe. Wide-eyed, the children pelted them with questions. In the pain of uncertainty, Paul answered what he could. Then he turned away, pulling Maureen along back to their bench. Grandma put an arm around each of them. More folks are coming in, she said, trying to put their world back together. Now, maybe we'll get some heartening news. In a daze, Paul and Maureen listened to the bits and pieces of talk. When we flew over, I saw how the waves had chawed big chunks out of the causeway, and six autos were left half buried in the sand. Even one of the ducks was stuck. When we flew over, the sea had swallowed up the causeway. Why, Chincoteague is cut off from the main like a boat without an anchor. I heard that lady over to Chincoteague had a husband and two children that couldn't swim. She swum two blocks in that icy water for help before one of those ducks fished her up and drug her sobbing and dripping to the firehouse. Then they went back for her husband and kids. The speaker paused. But guess what? What? Someone asked. Why, between a whiles a whirlybird airlifted him off the roof and they thought she had drowned and gone missing. But they all met up at the firehouse. See, children, 
Grandma whispered. Some of the news is right good. A young reporter carrying his typewriter joined the gathering. I heard, he said, that a hundred fifty wild ponies were washed right off Assateague. Oh, the news was met by a shocked chorus. Before I write that for the paper, I'd like you folks to give me your comments. He took out a notebook and a pencil. A strained silence followed. The reporter looked around at the tight faces and put his notebook away. Then the talk began again. I suppose we oughtn't be thinking about wild ponies when people are bad off, a white-haired woman said. But what would it mean to Shinkatique? the reporter asked, if pony penning day had to be stopped for lack of ponies. Grandpa Beebe roused up. Why, Shinkatigas took her place with the leading towns of the eastern shore, and mostly it's the wild pony roundup that did it. That's what I say, a chorus of voices agreed. And if we had to stop it, Grandpa went on, Shinkatig and Assateeg both would be nothing but specks on a map. The reporter scribbled a few notes. Then he looked up. Any of you hear about the man swept out to sea on a dining room table while his wife accompanied him on the piano? His joke was met with grim silence. It was nearly too true to be funny. Grandma tugged at Grandpa's sleeve. Clarence, she said, we've been hearing enough trouble. You tell the folks about me and my violet plant. Grandpa forced himself to smile. For the moment, he put the worry aside. Folks, he said, my itty here commenced watering her plants before we took off. She gave him a right smart nip. And then split my windpipe if she hadn't wet down the artificial violet that the kids gave her for Christmas. She even saucered the pot to catch the come-through water and dump that in too. A young woman laughed nervously. I can match that story, she offered. The sea kept coming in under our door and kept pushing up my little rug, so I took my broom and tried to whisk it away and then I got my dustpan and tried to sweep the water into it. A broom and a pan against the sea. A man, looking sheepish, said, I tried the same stunt in my barn, only I used a shovel and a wheelbarrow. The talk eventually petered out. Then a minister got up and prayed for a good night's sleep and for the tide to ebb and the wind to die. Gradually, the people went back to their benches. One by one, the lights were switched off, except for the night lights over the doors. As the babies settled down in their corner, Grandpa whispered, close your eye winkers, children. Turn off your worries and snore away the night. Then he got down on the floor wrapped himself up in a blanket and began breathing in deep, rhythmic snores.
What better lullaby, Grandma sighed, and Paul and Maureen caught his calm, and they too began to sleep. Chapter 12 Wait a Minute Couldn't By six o'clock the next morning, the men had been outside summing up the weather and had come in to report. The wind has slacked up a bit, still blowing north-northeast. Skies cloudy, but no rain. By seven o'clock, a new parade of church ladies marched in with big pans of sweet rolls and pots of steaming hot coffee. At eight o'clock, a Coast Guard officer, square-jawed and handsome, strode into the room. He was a big man, and when he pounded for order, the few leftover rolls jumped on their plates. Folks, he boomed out, I've got good news for you. He waited a moment until his scattered audience finished folding their blankets and quieted down. You'll be pleased to know, he announced, that the Red Cross is coming in, bringing canned goods and a steam table so you all can have nice hot meals. One of the church ladies walked out in a huff, and they're bringing cots and pillows so there will be no more sleeping on the floor. A shocked silence followed. Who wanted to stay another night, even on a cot? Everyone just wanted to get home. Bear in mind, friends, the brisk voice went on. This is not a one-day evacuation. More refugees will be coming in. Where will we put them? Several voices demanded. The officer ignored the interruption. By order of the State Department of Health, no women or children can return to Shinkatig until the island is cleaned and cleared. There might be a plague, typhoid, or even worse. Grandpa's arms seemed big enough to take in his whole family. Don't listen to that man. Ponies have sense. They'll hide themselves to their little hummocky places and wait it out. And Misty, of course, is dry and comfortable. The officer let the mumblings and grumblings die down. He rapped again for silence. The mayor of Shinkatig has asked for volunteers, only able-bodied men, to fly back each day to help the cleanup efforts and repair the causeway. Only able-bodied men, he repeated, scrutinizing the group. All who wish to volunteer come to the front of the room. Grandpa leapt forward as if he'd been shot from a cannon. Paul was a quick shadow behind him. Paul, Bibi, Grandma called out, you come back. But Paul seemed not to hear. He locked step with Grandpa, and they were almost the first to reach the officer. Grandma sighed. Who can stop a Bibi? We can be proud of our menfolk, can't we, Maureen? Maureen burst into tears. Oh, Grandma, being a girl is horrible. Paul always gets to have the most excitement, and he'll be the first to see Misty's big
baby. Oh. And she buried her head in Grandma's bosom and sobbed. There, there, honey. We'll find something real interesting for you to do. You'll see. A handful of lean, weathered fishermen were now lining up as volunteers. The officer began counting from the tail of the line. As he came to Paul, he stopped, trying to make up his mind if he were man or boy. For the moment, he left Paul out and went on with his counting. Eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen. At fourteen, he paused. But sir, Paul heard his own voice sounding tight and urgent. The copter holds fifteen, and Grandpa needs me. Don't you, Grandpa? The officer turned inquiringly to the old man. Fact is, Grandpa said proudly, when it comes to handling livestock, he's worth ten men. That settles it, the officer smiled. We've completed our first load. When the helicopter set down on Chincoteague right beside the firehouse, the mayor was waiting for them, and standing in the cold and the wet, slapping his hands together for warmth. He poked his head inside the cabin, quickly studied the occupants, then clipped out his orders. Split into three bunches, men. Bibi, you and Paul go up to Deephole to check on the ponies and mark their location. Charlie and Jack, you arrange for crews to clean and prepare at convenient loading points. We'll need the rest of you to work on the causeway so we can truck everything across. Thank you, men, for volunteering. Three ducks were parked alongside the helicopter, waiting to take each group to its base of operation. The driver of the first one beckoned Grandpa and Paul aboard with a welcoming smile. You men are lucky, he said. Your house is okay. At least, it was the last time I was down there. Is, uh, Paul stopped, embarrassed. The Coast Guardsman had just called him a man, and now he was frightened to ask a question, and more frightened not to ask. What are you looking so scared about, Grandpa wanted to know. I want to ask him a question, Paul said miserably. Go ahead, the driver encouraged as he steered through the debris-clogged street. Go ahead. Holding his breath, Paul blurted. Is Misty all right? Has she had her colt? Sorry, Paul. We've been too busy to look in on her, but Mayor says I can take you there before going up to Deep Hole. It was strange, chugging down Main Street. Paul knew he ought to have remembered how it was from yesterday, but yesterday's Shinkatigers were sloshing in hip boots, riding horses or ducks, and they were trying their best to joke and laugh. Today, there were no home folk faces. Grim soldiers were patrolling the watery streets, rifles held at the ready. What are they here for? Paul asked. To prevent looting, the Coast Guardsman replied. But what is there to loot? Paul wondered, looking at the houses smashed like matchboxes 
with maybe only a refrigerator showing or a bathtub filled with dirt. They passed other ducks plying up and down, delivering food to the firehouse, to the Baptist church, to the few houses on higher ground where owners had refused to leave, and they passed heaps of rubble where once old landmarks like the oyster shucking house and the neat white restaurant whose owner boasted that he bought his toothpicks by the carload. Now there was not even a toothpick in sight. As the duck headed eastward to the spit of land that was the BB's ranch, Paul winced. The pretty sign, Misty's Meadow, was still standing, but it didn't fit the spot. There was no meadow at all, only a skim of murky yellow water. Paul felt a strangling fear. He had waited all night and half the morning to see Misty. Now, in sight of the house, he couldn't wait another moment. He started to jump out. Grandpa put a restraining arm across his chest. You're as jerky as a fish on a hot griddle, son. Simmer down. Ponies can't abide to fidgety folk. After what seemed an eternity but was only a minute, the duck jolted to a stop and Paul and Grandpa were out and up the steps. Breathless, Paul opened the door a crack and all in a split second his worry fell away. Misty was whinnying as if she too had waited overlong for this moment and she started toward him, but stepping very carefully, lifting her feet high, avoiding something dark and moving in the straw. My soul and body, Grandpa clucked, looking over Paul's shoulder. Imagine that. Then, he and Paul were on their knees, and Paul was laughing weakly as he stroked, wait a minute, and admired her litter of four squirming coal-black kittens. Imagine that, Grandpa repeated. Misty's postponed hers, but wait a minute, couldn't. A whole mess of kittens in Grandma's kitchen, Paul said. Disappointed as he was, he couldn't help but laugh. Thank you for joining us today on Sleep Stories for Equestrians. We wish you a wonderful night's rest and hope you enjoy this calming music as it carries you off to dreamland.